Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Today we're talking to Dr. Katia Rubia, who is a reader in cognitive neuroscience based at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College in London. And she, with some co-authors, have published a fascinating paper in the January 2008 edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry, and the title of the paper is Brain Activation in Pediatric Obsessive Compulsive Disorder During Tasks of Inhibitory Control. So first of all, let's just talk about pediatric obsessive compulsive disorder. So a lot of people wouldn't realize that children can get OCD. Could you tell us a little bit about childhood OCD, maybe what some of the symptoms are, how it manifests itself? Yeah, the prevalence of childhood OCD is between uh, 1 to 3%. In the last uh, survey of the UK, it was about 1%. But some American studies find a much higher rate. This is almost the same prevalence rate as we see in adult OCD. So obsessive compulsive disorder is characterized by intrusive thoughts, which are repetitive. They are uh, causing distress to the patient and they're recurrent and Consequently, to these obsessions, they also um, have compulsions, which are usually conducted to release the anxiety of the impulsions. A good example would be being obsessed with being contaminated by germs from other people. So the patient would obsess about being dirty. And consequently, in order to release this obsession, he would go and wash his hands and would get momentarily release from this obsession. But then the cycle starts again. So he would continue to obsess that his hands are still dirty. And this would lead to these repetitive uh, behavioral patterns, which are called compulsions, frequent washing of the hands, for example. There are different types of obsessions. The most common are washing. Uh, as I just described, or checking, for example, repeatedly checking whether you have locked the door of your flat or whether the fire on the the cooker is still on, etc. A good example is um, Lady Macbeth, a fictional character of Shakespeare, who develops post-traumatic OCD. So OCD can be triggered by events. And in the case of Lady Macbeth, for example, after she ki- she kills her husband, she's obsessed with having blood stains on her hands. So she keeps on washing her hands. So that's an example of a post-traumatic OCD. In children with OCD, it can OCD can be triggered by external life events, for example, death of a parent. Uh, so emotional traumas can trigger OCD, but don't have to. Could you tell us something about the children that you recruited into this study? How many were they? Roughly what sort of age spread was it? They were about 10 years old, between 12 and 16 years. And one of the key things of this study, we wanted on purpose to actually look at children who were already partially in remission. Because when you scan uh, people with OCD, you have the confound that they have to, in order to do the task, they have to actually inhibit their obsessions and their compulsions. So on purpose, we actually selected children who were partially in remission to have no confounds with comorbid anxiety, which is, of course, another problem, especially in the scanner situation, and to prevent them to actually inhibit obsessions and compulsions rather than uh, doing what we were asking them to do with the cognitive tasks. So the children where we, we, we scanned 10 children with OCD doing three tasks of inhibition because the theory in adult OCD is that 
as well as in childhood OCD, that OCD is characterized by a problem with inhibiting these obsessions and compulsions, which are intrusive, which are causing distress. And obviously, they seem to have a problem with inhibiting that, because if they could inhibit that, they wouldn't have obsessions or compulsions. So that's a very interesting point in terms of the methodology of the experiment, that you on purpose cho- chose children in partial remission. Because often in, when one's doing a study, for example, a brain activation or a brain scanning study, particularly a functional brain scanning study of people with psychiatric disorder, you're looking for people with a full-blown illness so they can manifest the symptoms in the scanner. So I just want to run over that point because that's quite important. Partial remission was important because, first of all, you wanted to ensure they weren't so anxious that you weren't seeing an anxiety effect, and yes. that was a major confound variable. Yes, yeah. Yes, and second, because it has been shown, for example, in tick Tourette syndrome, which is very comorbid with OCD, uh, that when pe- people with problems like that, where they have intrusive behavioral patterns which interrupt with the normal behavior, when they are being scanned, the first thing they have to do to actually inhibit obsessions, in order to do a task of motor inhibition, they have to inhibit recurrent obsessions. Or, beha- or compulsions. So we wanted to eliminate that factor. But they, this was just a f- the first study on a series of studies. And currently, we are actually looking at medication-naive children who have never been tre- who have not been treated, who are medication-naive, in order to see what happens in the full-blown um, disorder. So one of the other things that's very important is you're looking for children who are in partial remission so they can actually inhibit the thing that people with a full-blown disorder can't inhibit as as a part, let's say, their ritualizing behavior, maybe a a recurrent thought or something like washing their hands. Yeah, that is not so much, that wasn't so much the point, but uh, they are asked to inhibit a task which we know they have problems with inhibitory control. So they also have problems when they're asked to do a task, a laboratory a task which simulates the ability to inhibit something. So that's why we chose these three tasks, because they're all tasks which require the subject to inhibit a motor response or to inhibit a destruction. So the motor response wasn't necessarily specific to OCD, it's just inhibiting a mo- any kind of motor response. Yes, yes, yes. That wasn't, they weren't asked to inhibit the obsessions. That wasn't the idea. But of course, if, you, if you're doing any cognitive task and you're busy obsession, ob- inhibiting your obsessions, then what we might see is not the brain activator related to the task, but the brain activation related to inhibiting your psychiatric symptoms. And that's not what we wanted to test. And furthermore, there is evidence that the ability to inhibit is a trait of OCD, not related to the state. So even adults, which are in full remission, still have problems on neuropsychological tasks where they have to inhibit the motor response. And before we did the study, we actually tested this in adults and in children, and we published uh, data showing that adults with OCD have problems in exactly these tasks. So that was the reason we chose them. Yeah. Could you give us some uh, understanding of, of the actual tasks they were required to do while in yes. the brain scanner? Yeah, there were three tasks. Uh, one was the, uh, was testing the ability to inhibit a motor response. So people typically see a stimulus where they have to press a button, and then there's stimulus where they have to inhibit this button press. And this ability we know is impaired in OCD, and it is thought that the whole uh, symptomatology of OCD is caused by a problem with inhibitor brain networks, which connect the frontal lobe and the basal ganglia. But because they have this problem with inhibitor networks, this, of course, doesn't only manifest um, 
at the behavioral level where they cannot inhibit their obsession, but it also manifests if you give them a task and you ask them inhibit this or that, they cannot inhibit it because in general inhibitory networks are impaired. So the the other two tasks were tasks where you have to inhibit more at a cognitive level, we call it cognitive inhibition. So there was uh, another Stroop task where you had, they had to inhibit interference from another stimulus, so they have to had to inhibit the a, a distraction, distraction from another stimulus. So they have to respond to one stimulus, and then there is a distracting stimulus. They have to ignore it. So this is more like a cognitive inhibition. And what were your results? Uh, the main results were exactly uh, we we found. Uh, partly what we hypothesized. So we hypothesized that uh, children with OCD would show abnormalities in the orbitofrontal cortex and the basal ganglia, which are areas we know are important for inhibition. And these areas were underactivated when they were asked to inhibit the motor response. We also found frontal underactivation in the other tasks. And in the um, more cognitive inhibition task, we found in addition prior to temporal regions to be underactivated. And there is recent evidence in adults that uh, adults with OCD have not only frontal abnormalities, but also abnormalities in parietal lobes and temporal lobes. And this, we think, has more to do with attentional networks. So we found inhibitory and attentional networks to be underfunctioning, uh, functioning to a lower level compared to controls. That was the main finding. And I would say the novelty is really because it is that in adults, uh, structural and functional imaging studies have shown that the orbitofrontal cortex is smaller in volume, is less fun- fun- functioning less well, as uh, in the same, uh, and also the same is the case for the basal ganglia and the thalamus. Now, in children with OCD, no one had done a functional imaging study, and the structural studies show abnormalities in the basal ganglia and the thalamus. But there is very little evidence for frontal lobe impairment in children with OCD. So that's one difference. And I think our study shows that children with OCD, even though they they were in partial remission, show a dysfunction of the orbitofrontal cortex, just like we see in adults. So it looks like the same networks which we know are impaired in adults, connections between the orbitofrontal cortex and the basal ganglia, are also underfunctioning in children with OCD. The particular scanning technique you used was um, event-related functional MRI. Could you say a bit about what that is? Yes. Uh, MRI, functional FMI, stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And basically, it's an imaging technique where you can look at the brain in vivo and in action. Um, So you can look at brain regions which are activated when the subject is doing something. So in this particular case, a cognitive task. And it works because uh, it measures essentially the blood flow and blood flow is increased in neurons which are active in the task, which are activated. And the brain overcompensates. So because these neurons, because they're activated, they need more oxygen, they need more glucose and the brain overcompensates so these regions are flooded with blood and basically red blood and you can actually see which areas are activated by looking at the amount of red blood which is surrounding these regions. What do you think is the significance of the particular areas that you saw where where there's um, altered activity in terms of our understanding of what's going on in the brain uh, with OCD? Yes. Uh, well, essentially, the theory is that um, 
frontostriatal networks which are important for inhibition and which develop late in life are dysfunctional in OCD. And there are several theories of why that might be. There is the, we know that serotonin is diminished. Serotonin modulates the orbitofrontal cortex in its ability to top-down inhibit subcortical regions. So there's also evidence there might be too much dopamine in the basal ganglia, which make, would make the basal ganglia overactive, which has been related to stereotype behavior patterns. So repetitive stereotype behavior patterns are observed, for example, in animals if they have too an overactivation of the basal ganglia. So it is thought that there is a dysregulation of these connections between the orbitofrontal cortex and the basal ganglia. And this is what our findings show, basically support this hypothesis. And because they cannot regulate those inhibitory networks, uh, children with OCD would be less able to inhibit these intrusive thoughts and these uh, intrusive compulsions, which might be originated by this overactivated basal ganglia and the diminished ability of the frontal lobe to control the basal ganglia. The problem with that theory, surely, is that that posits a generalised problem with inhibiting thoughts or behaviours. Yet people with OCD have a very specific problem inhibiting thoughts or behaviours linked to particular stimuli. Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that because neuropsychological studies show that they have inhibitor problems in a domain of areas. They have problems with reflex inhibition. They have problems with motor inhibition, as I said, inhibiting a motor response. They have problems with set shifting, which is a cognitive inhibition ability. If you want to switch between one task and another task, you have to inhibit the first action and engage in the second action. So they have problems with cognitive flexibility. Uh, they have problems with saccade inhibition, which is related to eye movements. So they have problems with inhibition not only inhibition of their own behavioral patterns of obsession and compulsions, but they also have problems with inhibiting uh, in other domains. So that is one of the pervasive uh, findings in the neuropsychological literature, that OCD children have, and adults, have problems with inhibiting a wide range of functions. How does your finding relate to the other literature of brain scanning research where people with OCD are being scanned while their symptoms are being provoked? Yes. How does it yeah. fit with the brain activity patterns that are found then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's a good question because when they are um, asked to, when they are provoked with dirt uh, stimuli, for example, which trigger the obsessions and compulsions, then they show an overactivation of precisely the same regions, orbitofrontal cortex, basal ganglia and thalamus. Now, the question is, um, are they exactly the same loops? We don't really know, the same networks, because there are many frontostriatal pathways. Some may be inhibitory, some may be excitatory. And there are two theories. One theory suggests that uh, they may be overactivated because they're trying to inhibit the obsessions and the compulsions, because this would be in line with our findings, because when you asked to inhibit, you have an underactivation of these areas, but when you you forced to inhibit something which controls don't have to inhibit, then you would see an overactivation. Um, the other theory suggests that there is a dysregulation of these pathways, which can be sometimes overactivated, sometimes underactivated, and while they're having the obsessions, probably 
these loops might be overactivated and the overactivation, in my opinion, is probably triggered by the basal ganglia. There might be more overactivation at the subcortical parts of these loops rather than the frontal parts, which would inhibit those loops. So there might be an overactivation of basal ganglia uh, loops triggered by dopamine, for example, when they're having the obsessions and compulsions. But when they're asked to inhibit something, uh, top-down frontostriatal loops might be underactivated. There's a big overlap with many symptoms of OCD and other problems like anxiety and depression. And often many patients have anxiety mm. and depression as well, and they're often being treated for that. And one of the problems, surely, with your finding of, of basal ganglia um, uh, activation um, issues and also the orbital frontal cortex is that, that those areas have been posited as being problematic in a wide variety of psychiatric disorders, not just OCD. That is perfectly true, and uh, this is one of our current research aims, that we are looking at the specificity of abnormalities. So the next step really is we, we have done the same tasks in children with depression, where we found more dorsolateral prefrontal abnormalities. We've same, done the same task in children with ADHD, where we found inferfrontal abnormalities, and in, in conduct disorder. So we are currently comparing between disorders because it is, as you say, it's crucial to understand the specificity of the biological abnormalities. And we know that almost all psychiatric disorders have problems with frontostriatal loops because they develop late in development and are therefore more susceptible to damage. So the next step really is to compare directly between disorders in order to understand whether these abnormalities are specific to one disorder or are they shared between disorders. And this is, of course, important for later for the development of treatment, because we need to, uh, first of all, establish what is specific in order to target, to, to, to develop targeted and disorder-specific treatment. Let's talk about treatment. What are the treatment implications of your finding? At this stage, uh, I think it's, it's early days, and of course we need to understand the neurobiology of disorders. We need to understand what's wrong in these disorders in order to be able to fix it. For the moment, I, I wouldn't say this has direct treatment implications, but I think it, it, it does in a way support existing treatments. We know that the OCD children are typically treated either with cognitive behavioral therapy, which can of course help them to um, enhance the ability to control uh, their thinking, which presumably would enhance these frontal areas which are underactivated. They are also treated with SSRIs, which are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And we know that serotonin has a fundamental role in helping the orbitofrontal cortex to inhibit subcortical regions. So the fact that these children have problems with the orbitofrontal cortex, I think, supports the treatment the current treatment which is given because serotonin is important and this would explain why serotonin improves the symptoms. Dr. Katia Rubia, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.